Hello and welcome to the IPA podcast. This is Paul Bainsfair and this week I'm delighted to be talking to Rory Sutherland. Now Rory is quite possibly one of the most famous advertising people in the world. I say that not least because his TED Talks have had over too many views. He writes regularly for The Spectator and on top of that he's one of Ogilvy's very top creative honchos. Well, look, let's talk about when you came into the industry, Rory, because um, I know from reading various bits about you that you, um, you went to Cambridge, um, but what, what sort of made you think advertising might be a, a good career choice? Um, I'll, I'll be honest at one level. Um, <laughs> there are quite a lot of jobs which are reasonably lucrative. By which I, I didn't mean that I was spectacularly greedy, but I wanted sort of tolerable level of uh, a, a material emolument. Um, and there are quite a lot of jobs which are interesting, but the overlap between the two isn't all that big, if you draw that little Venn diagram. And, and actually, I, I kind of wanted to work in advertising since I was about 11 or 12. Uh, it helped, of course, probably the biggest influence. Uh, most people say TV advertising, and obviously I grew up in that... Uh, era of so utterly the golden fantastic, age, yeah. the, gold, the golden age yeah. of TV advertising and uh, um, uh, you know, it's frothy man and, and uh, goodness knows what else. But the bigger influence with me uh, was probably the golden age of CDP press advertising in the Sunday, Sunday Times colour magazine in I guess the 70s. My brother and I would fight on, on, um, uh, on, on Sundays to get the colour magazine first out of the Sunday Times and we fought principally to read the ads. Wow. And there was, you know, I mean, a lot of them actually, we're probably not as good at recording the great press ads of that time. I mean, not bad, but I mean, you know, mm. uh, as, as we are at commemorating the great television ads, mm. but the fantastically written, I can still remember, uh, you know, wonderful things. There was a fabulous thing written, I think, by Indra Sinner for uh, Halifax Building Society. Uh, tremendous stuff for polyvelt shoes. No one mm. remembers this. Parker Pens, obviously. And, uh, and the, that, Harvey's. That Did they have Harvey's? I had a, they had a sh- or Croft or something. Yes. And there was a famous argument with the, with the, the client about the work, and I think Colin Nord or someone said, look, you stick to making the sherry. And we'll make the ads. And you, you have the impression there was a sort of bravura performance to those advertisements. And by the way, I mean, I'll be absolutely straight with this, I still miss, passionately miss, that business of uh, an extraordinarily pertinent headline with an extremely attractive visual accompanied by 250 words or so of generally witty badinage provided by some of the greatest writers of the era. And I have no idea why copy, if, 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 you look, if you look at general media, rap is a long form, a long copy medium. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Um, podcasts, what we're doing now, long copy media. Um, it's, you know, uh, people will devote sort of 24 hours to watching a television series. This idea that on the other hand we're vastly too time starved to spend what is perhaps 45 seconds reading 300 elegantly formed words about a subject or product that interests us is the biggest load of old bollocks. Mm. And I have no idea. It partly died, I think, because people could no longer write the stuff. It partly died because nobody researched it and you were researching these kind of ad Um But it, it, the effect of that dying, it, 
to be honest, even if you didn't read the copy, there was a psychological value there that showed that someone had enough to say to fill 250 yeah. words and could be bothered to actually write it. And well, you know, there's that psychological value of unread copy, which always sounds like a bit of a specious argument. But there's a bit of truth to it. It's a sort of basic courtesy. It's like opening the door to somebody rather than slamming it in their face. Well, you will be pleased to know we're going to celebrate uh, um, not just the press ads, but uh, we're 100 years old next year. The IPA. Of course. And we're going to have a, um, an exhibition. And it's, it's the fabulous detail about the IPA, isn't it? That it was founded in the midst of the uh, First World yeah, War. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as, a, as a trade alliance, you know, to help with the war effort. Oh, I see. It right. was a propaganda yeah. sort of producing... Um, that, 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 that's what you claim now. It, yes. was it was probably doing very hefty German language training just in case things yes, didn't turn out too well. Yeah. And you could, you could obey your new overlords. Now, um, I don't, I'm sure that's not true. No, now, um, you are, um, of course, you're a creative, you're a copywriter, but you started as a planner, didn't I, you? I got in as a graduate trainee, which effectively meant you were then predestined to become an account man. Um, uh, I had interviews, I think, with... I had a second interview with J. Walter Thompson, I think with Publicis, a couple of other, uh, first interview with Saatchi and Saatchi, and then I got a job, um, by chance as it happens, with what was then Ogilvy and May the Direct. And um, it was an extraordinary piece of good fortune, in fact. First of all, the agency had an unbelievable mix of remarkable talent around the late 80s and early 90s. So you had Drayton Bird as the kind of... Uh, Overlord, one of the you know huge influence on my life. Wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, Steve Harrison, Randy Hanfelder, people I worked with, Mike Sim. Just a really, really remarkable mix of of planning, creative, and just intellectual talent, really. And secondly, of course, um, whereas you probably would have thought in 1988 that going into direct marketing was a little bit of a cul-de-sac. Uh, six years later, when the internet came along in 94, um, uh, bluntly speaking, the direct people already instinctively understood what the conventional advertising people had to perform mental gymnastics to grasp. Mm. So it was a tremendous place to be given the time. I mean, it was a spectacularly so, lucky time. So can you explain to me why you were called the worst graduate trainee in, oh, Ogilvy, it, in Ogilvy and Mather it's history? Probably, it's probably been slightly overplayed. I mean, uh, um, but I was spectacularly bad at organisational skills and still am to a great extent. And it partly, I think, did, um, you know, it, uh, it didn't help that uh, when they realised my problems, they booked me on a time management course and I then got the date wrong <laughs> and failed to turn up. Love it. So I, I, was, um, I, I wasn't totally appalling at the client relationships business um, by any means, but. Um, uh, I was hopelessly disorganised and occasionally would go off on just daydream sessions. Famous story, I'm never quite sure whether this is true or apocryphal, was that um, I was in a meeting with some very senior clients and I was there as the most junior account person. And the managing director turned to me and said, Coffee, Rory? Meaning, go and serve these people some yeah. coffee. To which I replied, oh, thanks very much, milk, <laughs> no sugar. Um, that's always told of me. And I have a dim memory that it might be true, that I happened to be just dreaming at the time and wasn't really paying attention. Um, I then spent a bit of time as a planner. Um, it's, a, it's in fact very good and something which we ought to encourage more for people to spend a small amount of time early in their careers understanding different bits of the business. Because when I subsequently became a creative, 
you understood the problem from the account man's view much better, I think, uh, than if you just waltzed in. Yeah. Uh, and, and effectively said, okay, you, you effectively waltz in, I think is a great, and you'd either decide to be Mr. Helpful or Mr. Asshole, neither of which positions is necessarily a very good one in terms of having relationships with the uh, rest of the agency. And so having had some experience of that was useful. It was also useful having spent some time in planning, uh, in that um, I genuinely believe and have always believed that this is there is a lot of totally spurious pretense uh, within the advertising industry, often for the reassurance of clients that this is a kind of linear process, that you start off with a client business problem which then you know, becomes transmogrified into uh, a communication problem which is then brief, takes the form of a creative brief, uh, as if the whole thing is some sort of tailorist production line. Mm. And all the best work has elements of... Um, chaos, to be honest, in its creation. You have to be able to post-rationalise it. Yes. Um, you know, because there has to be some sort of clear logical flow. But equally, the idea that um, I would tease people when they said, stop, you're leaping towards execution. Because they go, well, that's perfectly valid. Solving a problem instinctively and then post-rationalising why you find a solution, that's okay. Now, the reason you probably never tell clients this is that, particularly since we're billed by the hour, we have to maintain for their general reassurance and procurement box to we, we that pretense. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's not that we're not putting man hours in, but we have to maintain the pretense that there is this linear process which you slavishly follow, which leads to the creation of great and effective advertising. And um, now, Actually, in fairness, okay, maybe in my entire life, two or three really, really good bits of work have happened just like this. You know, someone in planning has just had this lovely little insight. The insight, when delivered to creative, then produces great work, problem solved, no need to kind of, um, no need to reculer pour mieux sauter or to, uh, you know, uh, or to change direction or to reinvent things or to go back to the beginning. Um, sometimes there are cases, once or twice, where uh, the first idea just cracks it. Some crazy person goes, well, that's obvious, you do that. Mm. But the idea, and this is, this is by no less true of scientific discovery, the idea that there is a scientific process, that's something which we maintain when we're up on stage describing our invention, as Peter Medawar said. The process is something we reserve for what you might call stage presentations. The reality is usually much messier. And uh, there's a great book, actually, by a guy called Paul Feuerbend, called Against Method, uh, where he, um, uh, he makes this point, that if you look at real scientific breakthroughs, there isn't any common theme to the process by which they were arrived at, and usually luck plays a part mm. somewhere along the line, too. Well, I mean, we, certainly that's... We ought, be, we ought to be frank about this, by the way, because I think the real... I, I've come to the conclusion after 28 years in the business that the real value of an advertising agency isn't predominantly that it produces advertising. Obviously, the, proce the process or the series of activities we go through when attempting to solve an advertising problem have a value in themselves, even if they don't lead to the production of any communication. 
there's simply a value to taking any business and looking at it through a completely new lens or frame. Uh, what is valuable to the consumer, what is meaningful to the consumer, may in fact be extraordinarily different to what the business itself thinks is its core function. I make this point about Uber. You know, the hardcore rationalists think that Uber is about lower costs and higher efficiency. My argument is, from a psychological point of view, the magic of Uber, all those things it improves through, you know, by 10, 15, 20%. There's nothing groundbreaking about a 20% improvement. What it transforms is the level of uncertainty you feel when booking a cab. Mm. You know, first of all, you know whether there are lots of cabs available or very few before you make a booking. Secondly, once you order the cab, you can watch it approach on the map. So that normal paranoia of where's he gone, they send 10 minutes, maybe he's parked around the corner, um, that all disappears. And that, actually, it's a psychological thing, which is the real order of magnitude transformation. And so the very act of looking at a business and asking what makes this really magical from a consumer's point of view, from a psychological point of view, rather than from a kind of economic or systems point of view, is valuable in itself. The second important thing of the ad industry, I think, is that an ad agency should be simply an unusual business culture in that it should be a place where you can make stupid suggestions and still get promoted. Now, I look at most businesses and they're kind of reputationally paranoid. You know, if you look at sort of public sector or governmental organisations, two daft frivolous suggestions and your career is destroyed. You're yeah. out. Yeah. You're out. <laughs> yeah. What we have to create and defend here is an atmosphere uh, where you can say slightly outrageous things which, if they're interesting, get you rewarded. And that's the really, really important point. Quite often, I would argue, in order to solve a problem, you have to climb Mount Silly before you can get to the bright sunlit uplands that lie beyond. Sometimes the way you get to a more interesting route or a more useful route is, is through a kind of improvisational comedy. And if we don't create the space in an agency where people can feel that they're safe to say those things, uh, then we've got a real problem. So uh, I wanted to now talk about behavioural economics. Robert, of course. Because you know, when you were the president of the IPA, it was very much the centre part of your agenda. Um, you've you've um, become, if you, if you like, almost famous for your connection with behavioural economics, TED Talks, um, what have you. Over a million people, I think, have, have listened to you talk about it. Um, do you feel like it's made a difference? Do you feel that there are now examples at work that you can point to where people have, have picked up this baton and, and run with it? I mean, lots. Actually, there's an IPA publication which lists out of the successful Effectiveness Awards winners the behavioural insight, the psychological insight that underpins it. And I think there are two ways in which it's important, or at least two ways in which it's important. Um, uh, first of all, it's in uh, a better understanding of how people think, decide and act, which should lead to better work, or might lead to better work being more effective. So I think there are cases where you have a very good product, you have very good advertising, but there is just one thing psychologically wrong with everything you've done. Or there's one thing in the, uh, you know, let's say you've got a, you know, a fa fabulous product and you've got a dud call center script. Mm. Okay, you can produce brilliant advertising and you can produce 
uh, you know, and, and you can offer an utterly fantastic product, and you will still fail because of that one glitch in the system. So de-glitching is a really, really important role in behavioral science. The way I always describe it is that, um, you, you know, I can cook for you, or, or rather, not myself, because I'm shit at that, but I can get the world's best chef to cook for you your favorite meal. And if one of the tines on the fork was slightly out of alignment, you'd find it impossible to enjoy. And I think there are things which marketers do because they don't have a full understanding of human psychology, where um, they squander a huge amount of money or they fail simply because something about the product just causes instinctive unease or disquiet in some shape or form. And the tragedy there is you might produce a brilliant advertising campaign and the sales curve won't go up much at all because somewhere downstream in the system there's a bottleneck or, or, or a glitch. Second thing is the inspiration it can provide if you understand uh, what the real human motivation is behind a product as distinct from the theoretical economic value which the product offers. And they are often very, very different. And that is creatively liberating. The third thing is, by the way, it provides you with a decent vocabulary by which most good creative people are instinctive behavioural scientists. They're very good instinctive behavioural scientists. If you look at you know, the great advertising lines, let's just take a couple, okay? Now, interestingly, uh, reassuringly expensive, for example, good things come to those who wait. Uh, all of those things, often clients don't like them because they actually emphasise a negative. Stella was expensive, uh, Guinness is a tedious poor, uh, and uh, I know people who work behind bars despise punters who order the Guinness last. For God's sake, they say, if you're going to order a Guinness, Mention it first. Let me get it underway. Let me yeah. get it underway while yeah. I'm doing all the other work. Um, uh, in fact, uh, as Robert Cialdini's shown, this business of conceding a small negative with a big positive is a very, very potent persuasive technique. So in many cases, the ability... Fresh cream cakes naughty but nice. Mm. Another one written by Salman Rushdie while he worked here, uh, before he decided to squander his talent by writing Midnight's Children. Um, those kind of things are um, sometimes very, very difficult to sell to clients because they seem slightly counterintuitive. And they only want to say positive things. things. They only want to say wonderful things. Surely that's how persuasion works. Yeah. Um, on the contrary, a, a tiny little counter-signal of kind of, it's expensive but it's worth it, yeah. is a very, very potent technique in establishing kind of candor and, and yes. trust. Yes. Um, They've admitted that, so the rest of the thing they say must be true. So exactly, yeah. 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 Now, once you understand some of the science, I think a lot of great work has failed because the problem is that the language of marketing is terrible. And I think the diminution of the stature of marketing within wider organisations is the biggest problem facing the marketing services industry today. I don't think our biggest problem is our, whether our clients like us or not. It's actually whether the people in operations or finance respect our clients. Mm. And the problem with marketing language is, um, I think it was Alistair Graham said brilliantly, he's a copywriter here, it's like the language of astrology. If you're talking to fellow believers, it's fine. Uh, if you're talking to anybody else, you sound mad. Yes. And marketing has done an abominable job of making itself palatable or convincing or non-scary mm. to people elsewhere in the organisation. You know, I, 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 by accident, I ended up as the non-executive director of a few organisations. And what you realise is that 
board meetings are really, I mean, they're really a kind of masturbatory contest between males and who can read a balance sheet better. But they're insanely left brain mm. in the topics they cover. So I imagine for a marketing person to go into one of those meetings and have to talk about brand iconography. As I once said, I think it's like going to the head of thoracic surgery at St Mary's Hospital and saying, we must all trust to the healing power of the crystal. <laughs> it makes you sound that bonkers. And so I think for marketing to recapture, you know, uh, learnings and vocabulary from social science, behavioural economics, and actually mainstream economics. You know, I think you'd go into a board meeting and say, rather than talking about added value, you'd say, um, what we're doing is increasing the saliency of the consumer surplus. Mm. Okay? Now, those guys might then listen to it and give you a budget if you actually said, you know, we're, we're, we're simply here to, um, uh, you know, re-emphasise the totemic, totemic value of the brand, effectively, you're not going to get a cheque. Yeah. And is this what you were getting at when we were talking before we started recording, that there is a language or there's a rationality that can be brought to bear yeah. to help well, advertising the market? Um, there's a very critical thing, which... Um, most people taking business decisions have probably been to a business school now, and most people who've been and done an MBA have probably done what you might call MBA economics. Now, so when I occasionally slag off economics, I'm not having a dig at Joseph Stiglitz or George Akerlof or one of these people, okay? I'm not having a go at the giants of the field. What I'm saying is there's a kind of economics light which pervades business decision-making, which is deeply inimical to marketing. And I go further, I think it's deeply inimical to business um, and to the value of business. And what it is, it's you assume that value is objective and that the purpose of a business is to generate as much of that objective value as efficiently as possible. Typically, the value is very narrowly defined as well. Not in sort of emotional or psychological terms, it's defined in terms of you know, what a thing is and what it's... Uh, objectively measurable attributes are. You can see the pursuit of that kind of vanity when you had that you know, campaign to make mobile phones smaller and smaller until they reached the point where they got lost in your pocket. No, there was a value to making mobile phones smaller when they, things were a goddamn brick. But once the thing fits comfortably in your pocket... Enough already. Enough already, yeah. yeah. Stop, stop this fatuous pursuit of, uh, uh, of, of really what has you know, now become a, a rogue metric. And so that's the obsession. The other assumption is that in Duddy, in this kind of economics light, is that people are making decisions in an atmosphere of perfect information and perfect trust. And now in such a world, marketing wouldn't need to exist. If consumers had perfect symmetric information and trusted everybody completely, and there were no rogues around, you wouldn't need a marketing function, you wouldn't need an advertising budget, I freely admit all that. Those conditions in the real world exist never. Okay? And brands are a reliable source of reassurance simply because we know that someone who has a lot of money pre-invested in a reputation has much more to lose from selling a bad product than someone you've never heard of. It's perfectly rational. Once you accept a few very basic things, we don't have perfect information, we don't have perfect trust. Thirdly, what we're trying to do on Earth as evolved human beings is not to maximise, it's not to optimise. What we've principally evolved to do, and what is the only acceptable definition of rationality, 
is to aim to make choices that are pretty good and definitely aren't terrible. Mm. Now, if you think that the rational way to buy a television is to buy the best television you possibly can, then the only way you can do that is, well, I suppose you could become a television engineer and spend five years studying OLED technology if you wanted to. It would be a slightly time-consuming thing to have to do every time you made a consumer purchase. If I wanted to buy shampoo, I should investigate the chemical components. That's both time-consuming and largely impossible. Well, we're not trying to buy the best shampoo. We're buying a, buy, trying to find a shampoo that's pretty good. And we're also trying to buy a shampoo that definitely isn't awful. We're trying to buy a television that's in the top kind of quartile of decency, but which definitely won't go bang, set our house on fire, uh, suddenly turn green, display a very um, large green number one at the top. I, I had a friend who had a television with this. Uh, it would display an you enormous... Get rid of it. And you couldn't get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the remote control, for some bizarre reason, as all TV remote controls had, had 97 buttons on it, you know, all but six of which had no readily discernible purpose. So getting this green number one to go away would take the better part of an afternoon. Anyway, we're not trying to do We're not trying to achieve perfection. We're trying to avoid crappiness. Now, in order to do that, the, the mechanisms you use mentally are very different. So I explain this very simply. I've just done another podcast where I explain this. The naive view of human decision-making is that a decision is like archery. You aim for the bull, and if you just miss the bull, it scores concentrically. If you miss a 10, you get a 9. If you miss a 9, you get an 8. If you miss an 8, you get a 7. So the rational thing to do is to aim for the 10. Okay? That's archery. Real-world decisions are much more like darts. Okay? If you just miss the triple 20, you don't get 179 or 178, you get 1, which is, other than missing completely, the worst thing you can possibly get. If you're not very good at darts, if you're Phil the Power Taylor, you're good enough to aim for the triple 20. It pays off. Most of us, including probably pretty good darts players, pub darts players, shouldn't do that. Aim for the bottom left-hand quadrant of the board, where although you won't get a triple 20, there's a 19, there's a 16, there's an 8, I think there's a 12 somewhere around. My memory's a bit hazy. Um, you're reducing the worst that can happen rather than trying to optimise the best. And in evolutionary terms, that is, a, um, that is a more important thing. There are far more ways of dying than there are of surviving. If you make a suboptimal meal choice, you get to choose another day. If you make a disastrous meal choice, you never get to eat again or reproduce. And so our calibration as human beings is not archery, it's darts. And there is a statistical paper, by the way, showing that uh, you know, non-excellent darts players should aim at slightly different points in the southwestern corner of the ball. Because if you're not that good at darts, or if you're drunk, or the board's moving, or your eyesight's wonky, you're much better off there. Uh, than you are trying for the triple 20. Human decision-making is calibrated in that way, not for archery darts, okay? And as a result, quite a lot of the things that are deemed to be irrational by economists, social copying, okay? If I buy the brand leader in a category, the top-selling car, okay? It may not be the best car out there for me, but it's highly unlikely to be a dog. Mm. Okay? A habit... I've always bought these cars, so if I buy another one, I have pretty good reason to believe it's going to be okay. It's a lot safer 
um, you probably know this, how old are you? Over 50. Yes. Have you started going on holiday to the same place again? Yes, I Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the great thing about being old, isn't yeah. it? Once you get to over 50, all that young thing of, hey, Rio Carnival, no, screw that, okay? I went there last time, it was all right, I'm going there yeah. again. I know all the best beaches. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I know the beaches, I know where the supermarket is, I don't have to spend the first four days of my holiday working out what the hell's going on. Very no, good. absolutely right. So habit, once you understand that you're not trying to optimise, you're trying to satisfy, as Herbert Salmon called it. Now, David Ogilvy uh, was on to this in the 60s, and I only learned this recently, uh, talking to someone called Joel Raffleson, who founded Ogilvy in Chicago and worked with David throughout the 1960s. They were having exactly the same discussion, I wish I'd known, where they said, uh, Joel's way of phrasing it is, people did buy brand B over brand A because they thought it was better, but because they were more sure it was good. Yeah. And had they only known about Herbert Simon, who was at that point on his way to winning a Nobel Prize at Carnegie Mellon University, a few hundred miles to the west, um, where they could have taken this might have been fascinating. But once you understand that you're trying to avoid catastrophe much more than you're trying to attain perfection, a lot of things that human beings do aren't stupid, they're really clever. So let's say you want to buy a second-hand car. You could go and find out a hell of a lot about cars, okay? And then you could go around and, you know, bring your RAC guy with you, test all those weird things like the oil level and the pedals and the you know, the state of the inland manifold or whatever it might be. Or you could buy a car from someone you really trust who lives locally. Because the car problem is difficult to solve. But the who do I trust problem, we've had two million years of evolutionary practice. And can I trust this bastard? And if the person lives locally, so they're vulnerable to shame if they sell you yes, a, yes. a scandalous car, and you basically trust them, and you buy their second-hand car, that person is obliged to tell you if the car's a bit dodgy. Now, you may get unlucky that the car's bad, but you won't get ripped off. By contrast, the engineer... Now, the, question, the experiment I'd love to do is give an RAC engineer 50 cars to buy at auction using his knowledge of engineering. And then give someone like my late mum, who knew nothing about cars but knew a lot about people, give her the task of buying 50 second-hand cars from people she trusted, I think I would bet on my mum, not on the engineer. And incidentally, you can game the engineer. Other people can spot what the engineer is looking at and they can learn to cover up those deficiencies. Mm. Gaming general trustworthiness over many years is a much more difficult thing to do. This sounds like a, um, a sequence that the new Top Gear programme could try. It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, I, I often... Um, you need time, obviously. Very interesting thing. I always buy my cars second-hand, but I buy them from... Good Edward de Beaumontech, by the way. Buy second-hand Jags. Always been a second-hand Jag man. And Edward de Beaumont's perfect point was that people who like Jags tend not to like second-hand cars. So if you buy a two-year-old Jag, you get an insane amount of car. They're disproportionately depreciated. So you get an insane amount of car for not very much money. Yeah. Um, but I also go and buy them from a dealer who is local, uh, because in the town, my argument is I'm happy to pay a few hundred pounds more because he's reputationally vulnerable. Yeah, if he sells sense. me a dodgy car, I can damage his future career prospects by going around town and slagging them off. Yeah. Now, again, not perfect, but very good at avoiding catastrophe. 
sort of way. Yes, yes, I don't want to get ripped off. Whether I save 300 quid or 100 or whatever is of lesser importance than I don't buy a total stinker. And so the, the, the mechanism I deploy there is, again, sort of local trust feedback loops. And it's kind of a very interesting thing that every sort of, now my car's about seven or eight years old. I buy them about one year old and keep them for about one or two years old and then keep them for seven or eight years mm. until they've done about 80,000 miles. And then I start all over again. And um, the interesting thing I discovered is that when I take in my eight, eight or nine-year-old car to trade it in for my next one, I discovered this from some of the car trade, and the first thing they do is they ship it to somewhere else 300 miles away. Really? Because they don't want to have the feedback if the car proves dodgy. Yeah, yeah, how interesting. It's a very, very interesting, yeah. very, very interesting thing that, that, that they effectively use, you know, yeah. distance. So they're doing the opposite. They're doing it Yeah, they're effectively insuring themselves. The yeah. They basically want to sh sell it totally yeah. anonymously. So if my car proves to be a bit of a dog, it doesn't yeah. stick back on them. So look, anyway, Roy, we, we, we must move on because this is, I could sit here all day talking to you. But, it, but there are only, you don't have to be very clever to do this stuff. You just have to realise that three or four of the things you've taken as axiomatic about human decision making, e.g. we are trying to buy the best thing. We're aiming for a triple 20. We're not. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, once you understand we don't have perfect information, we don't have perfect trust, once you do that, you understand that a lot of the things that have always disquieted people, I think, about advertising are wrong. Mm. Advertising is a very reliable... Now, I won't get into this because it takes ages to describe. Anybody listening to this podcast, get into and understand costly signalling theory. Costly signalling? Costly signalling theory. Signaling. It's from evolutionary biology. Right. The weight that's carried by a message is only partially... Uh, determined, in fact, in many cases, not really determined at all by what the message ostensibly says, but by the cost of delivering the message. Right. Now, let me give you this example. You're invited to two weddings on the same weekend, okay? The invitations both follow completely the standard format for a wedding invitation. The parents of X and Y invite Mr. P to the wedding of their daughter, so-and-so, to so-and-so, so-and-so, in this church at this time. One of those invitations arrives by email, the other one arrives uh, in a handwritten envelope, the first class stamp, and printed on an embossed card. Okay? The message is identical, the inferences you will draw from those two things are totally different. Mm. Yeah, the first one by email, it might be a more fun affair, but you probably suspect there's going to be a cash bar. Upfront expense is something we can use to infer long-term intention. Mm. In other words, this person would only advertise this product, investment in advertising this product would only pay if the advertiser believes that it will be widely and repeatedly popular. Well, therefore, the fact that they're choosing to advertise it is a reliable indicator of the manufacturer's faith in his product. Mm. Now, we, what's so fascinating is we perform that quite complex second-order inference instinctively. You'd instinctively read those two wedding invitations and draw completely different inferences from them. Now, what happens, by the way, if you want to um, uh, invite people to a wedding in a way that shows the wedding is really, really important, but you haven't got enough money to buy embossed card or to print that fancy thermography or even to buy a first-class stamp? The way you do it is you use creativity. You produce a fantastically creative. Mm. 
So it's costly not only in financial terms, but in effort, degree of difficulty, degree of artistry, are all ways of signalling what you might call this is a costly communication from which you can infer more significance than if, if the same ostensible message were delivered for free. So we've got to be really careful when people like Sorrell burble on about shifting money to digital. Because part of the efficacy of that, efficiency is a very, very dangerous thing to pursue because everything that humans really appreciate and, and derive significance from in life is an inefficiency, mm. okay? Everything, everything that's really meaningful in human life is some, to some extent an example of selective inefficiency. Whether it's creativity is selective inefficiency. It's a disproportionate amount of effort invested in something. Okay? Now, burbling on about we can just make advertising more efficient by shifting it to digital at a lower cost may be a disastrous mistake to make because when I perceive that messaging me has cost you nothing, I may devalue the significance of the communication. So a large part of the value of advertising, and you might argue 99% of the value of sports sponsorship, simply comes from the perception that it's expensive mm. in the consumer's mind. Go on. Well, that is really a whole different way of thinking about things. And um, I, I really wanted to end the interview by asking you for a book recommendation. Very easy, I think I'm gonna give you a biggie. And it's the book Sapiens by a man called, I think it's something Noah Harari. Uh, he's, I think, the, at the University of Tel Aviv. And it's a kind of history of humankind written in many cases from a highly counterintuitive standpoint, but one which is any creative person will find utterly fascinating and rewarding in equal measure. Sapiens. Sapiens, yeah. If you haven't read it already, and quite a few smart people in the business will have done, I suspect, it's a corker. Okay, well, we'll put that on our list. And last thing, hero, your hero, living or um, dead. I'm, uh, without going into weird ones, um, oddly, um, I have a disproportionate admiration for anybody who can do more than one thing. So strangely, I venerate people. I, I'm not remotely interested in soccer, but I've always been a huge admirer of Gary Lineker, simply because even if he'd never played soccer, he'd be quite a good TV presenter. Yeah. Uh, Ronald Reagan, similarly. So I think there is something in me that I think, you know, you know maybe, maybe to be great at one thing, there's just a degree of luck and being in the right place at the right time. But I have a disproportionate admiration for people who've proved themselves great at more than one thing. That's a, something I believe in too. So what a great point to end on. I, I, I always recommend it actually if people, maybe, you know, maybe everybody in life should have a kind of side bet yeah. you know, of some kind. Yeah, be good at something. Be good else. at something else. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, Rory, thank you very much. It's been fun talking Always to you. Always a pleasure. And informative as always. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to Rory. An absolute font of knowledge on pretty much everything you ask him about, as always. Um, do listen out for upcoming podcasts. Um, we'll try and find some equally interesting people for us to talk to over the coming weeks. This has been Paul Bainsman, and this has been the iPad Podcast.